Well, it is a privilege to be with you all again this morning, and uh, God is good all the time, amen? amen? And what's the rest of that statement? All the time He is good, amen. Even when the days are difficult, He remains the same. This morning, if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to look at Paul's <clears throat> words here in the very first few verses. And then we're going to look at chapter 2 as well as Paul speaks about his glory. And so uh, if you're taking notes this morning, I'll have three points. And I want to start with the first three verses of 1 Corinthians. And as you're turning there, uh, Corinth was a church that was in the midst of a difficult city. And they also had a lot of difficulties in their own body. I've been reminded of Corinth a lot uh, over the last couple of years. And in these first three verses, Paul says some things that are his introduction, that are his greeting, but they also reaffirm some blessings and promises for all of us. And so this morning we're going to start by taking a look at his greeting and, and looking at how it applies to us. So point number one this morning will be a reaffirming greeting. Verses one through three, if you'd follow along with me. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ through the will of God. And Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Paul start off there with reminding the Corinthians of his testimony. And his testimony involves a couple of things. One, that he was called by Jesus Christ, and two, that it was the will of God, not his own. And isn't that true for every single one of us as well? When we share our testimony, it is a testimony to God's calling upon our lives, calling us to salvation, and it is a testimony of the will of God. I think we all long for God's will, don't we? We see so much going on, and we long for God's will to be done. What we're reminded of in Peter or reminded of in the Gospels is that God's will is not many times our will. Paul was believing that he was doing God's service, going around the equivalent of an ISIS radical, killing Christians, throwing them in jail. That's what Paul was doing. But Jesus came on the scene, and Jesus changed all of that. Jesus called Paul, and by his will sent him to be an apostle. And we have many of Paul's letters making up a good part of our Bible. We know the testimony of him. But are you encouraged this morning that when we share our testimony, just as Paul did, we point to the calling of God and the will of God, which every one of us can find encouragement in, in the midst of whatever we're going on. The Lord's call and his will is still active today. We see Paul was not writing alone. He's, he's with this guy, Sosthenes. Now, we don't know exactly who he was, but he most likely was somebody who was from Corinth. One of their uh, church members, most likely. Some commentators think he may have even been the leader of the synagogue that had been converted by Paul's ministry. Because Corinth was one of the few cities where Paul not only planted the church, but he pastored the church. There's only a couple of places where Paul did that. And Paul is writing to them along with Sosthenes and encouraging them. And he says in verse 2 that he is writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth. 
And I think we need to apply this this morning to us as well. God is writing to the church in Bloomsdale, which is in the United States. We can see the headlines, and it's so easy to be discouraged and fearful. I know I've been there some myself too, or maybe not fearful so much as angry, if I'm honest, about what's going on. And how it seems that there's an attempt to pull the wool over our eyes and not to talk about the discouragements of what we see going on this morning. I'm reminded that it's still the church of Jesus in this place, in the middle of the country. God has not left this church. And Paul reminds them that they are the church of God. They've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Amen. He's going to protect them. He's going to take care of them. Now, his protection does not mean that it will be without difficulty. His protection does not mean that it will be without cost. But he, nonetheless, will continue to love and protect his own. And we see that Paul not only writes to the church of God, but he reminds them that they are sanctified in Jesus Christ. Now, in Corinth, they were known for their immorality. They were known for their godlessness. They they had a market for religion. They had every type of paganism that you can think of on every street corner. And that's why Paul, when he was at this city, did not receive anything. He didn't take any type of a a salary from the Corinthians. He allowed other churches to support him because of the prevalence of so many teachers that would just get people to buy into and to support whatever tickled their ear that they came up with. But Paul reminds them in the midst of the situation they find themselves, They have been sanctified by Jesus Christ. They have been made holy by the Lord Jesus' blood, and they have been sinners who have been transformed into saints. Amen. Jesus is not done with us. He is still transforming his church, and he will continue to transform our lives until the day that he calls us home. Paul reminds them of that. He reminds them that even though they find themselves in a difficult culture, in a difficult situation where they're at in their own church body, they've not been left alone. Jesus is still at work, and he will complete his work. And then we see that Paul goes on to say that the gospel is timeless and an inclusive body, that the gospel has gone in every place to those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm comforted and reminded of that fact, that the gospel is all across this globe. As I was driving out here this morning, I was listening to the radio, and I happened to turn to a station I'm not usually on, and I heard the testimony of a lady who had been in the Philippines and who had undergone persecution for her faith. And I didn't hear the complete story, but it sounded like she had lost her husband to the ice. And she had gone through incredible suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. But in the midst of all that, she said, that the Lord had taught her that he was faithful. And she said that in the midst of the suffering and the persecution, that she had seen some things in herself that she wished she would never have seen. But how the Lord's grace was present even in that literal suffering for Jesus Christ. In every place all around the globe, there still are believers who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is still going forth. Many of the places where it's spreading the most, we don't hear a lot about. Communist China, the Middle East, where it's illegal to be a believer, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Where they don't have the freedom to gather like we do in this building today. We have a warm building. 
And around the world, they gather in the middle of the night, arriving hours separate from one another in little groups so nobody knows they're gathering. With one light hanging from the wall, no heat, no air conditioning, just so that they can open up the one Bible the whole church may have and study the Word of God. We have incredible privileges, and we are reminded that there are so many calling on the name of Jesus. We're reminded that His work is not hindered. As a matter of fact, many times when things get tough for the believers, it's the greatest blessing for the church. I can tell you one thing. I can tell you that when I've been in the workplace and I can tell you when I've, I've just lived my brief life, people don't care much for the gospel when it's comfortable or when they see a lot of Christians they're complacent. But when they see it cost you something, all of a sudden it's attractive because you're willing to endure something for the sake of what you believe. I remember several years ago when I was working at a grocery store and I didn't tell people I was a Christian, but they found out. And, and to be honest, putting two and two together, the way they usually found out is because coworkers would have mocked me about it. But that led to conversations where they asked, why do you believe that? And we have great conversations about the gospel. And it's, it's not just being a good person, it's about the blood of Jesus. Incredible conversations that as a manager, I never was supposed to initiate myself. But God opened those doors. In the midst of a time when we may experience challenge, God's going to get a lot of glory. And if it costs us something, the gospel is going to be on display as it never has before. We can take great courage in that. You know, Paul, we're going to see near the end of our message today in chapter 2, he dealt with fear. He dealt with weakness. He dealt with trembling. He even dealt with persecution from the church in his day. And we're going to get to that in just a little while. But as we finish off verse 3 here, where we have been, we see four words that are so full of meaning. We see grace, peace, Father, and Lord. That grace reminds me that everything we have in Jesus is freely given to us. It's gracious. If you talk about somebody being a gracious individual, they're kind even when you don't deserve it. They're kind even when, well, maybe something you should have done deserved a slap, but they were gracious towards you. We have the grace of God given to us in Jesus. Everything we have in the Lord is because of His grace. And we also see the peace of God, the shalom of God, the wholeness of body, soul, and mind. God gives us His peace, and it comes from Him alone. And then we're reminded in Paul's closing of his introduction as well, that God is our Father. And I don't know about you, but when I think of God as our Father, I think of Him being the provider, being the Father, and, and me the child, Him taking care of me. And then He also refers to Jesus as our Lord, which at this part I think we may be a little more accustomed to, to push back against in our country, which is that Jesus is our Master as well. And we're called to serve Him. I was thinking just the other day, now, there is so much talk about racism and inequality and division and privilege, and I think a lot of that's just made up to divide us against ourselves. But I'm reminded of the gospel. I'm reminded that Jesus brings us all together, and I'm also reminded that there is a slavery that every one of us needs, and that is slavery to Jesus Christ. You will never be his equal, and you will never be deserving of what he's given to you. 
we have his grace, his peace, his fatherly provision, and his lordship that he is our master. He's the one that calls the shots. Jesus simply calls us to obey. To either obey or disobey. There's really no choice. We see all of this contained in Paul's greeting as he reaffirms so many truths of our faith and of encouragement in these first two verses. If you jump ahead to verse 26 with me, we're going to finish out chapter 1 here in verse 26 on, and we see point number 2, a glory not about me and not our own. A glory that's not about me and it's not our own. As theologians refer to it, it's a, it's a foreign righteousness, something outside of ourselves. Do join me in, in looking at these verses. For you see that your calling, brethren, not many wise were called according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We see a glory that's completely outside ourselves. And Paul reminds them in verse 26, after we've seen in the first verse that he talked of his own calling, he reminds you and he reminded those Corinthians of their calling. Think back at your life. How did the Lord call you to salvation? The Bible says that you're chosen by God. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging. God chooses me. He chooses me when I know I'm not worthy. He's chosen you. He's called you. And Paul reminds us, he reminds many of these brothers and sisters there in Corinth that many of them were slaves. Many of them did not have status. A few did, but most in that church did not. And he reminds them that many of those that God has called are not wise. They're not mighty. They're not strong. But God chose them. The gospel has saved them. And we're reminded of that. When the powers that be may seem to be doing everything wrong, we're reminded that we are chosen by God. We're reminded that he has called us. And just as Paul shared his calling with the Corinthians in the first verse and encouraged them by reminding them of the gospel through his own testimony, so your calling and my calling, our story of salvation, is a witness to others. And it's something that Paul is encouraging them to think back on, to remind themselves of, and to share with others. Paul says, that God has chosen the weak things. It says that he has chosen the base things. That word base reminds me of, of, you know, like the basic model of a car. No thrills, nothing special. But yet that's the very thing that God many times chooses. You know, sometimes it's discouraging to me when I think about the fact that those who are highly educated, those who do have a lot, in the way of this world, so often just turn their nose up at the gospel. It, it breaks my heart that you have so much by way of this world. 
and yet it becomes a barrier. It becomes an idol between you and the truth. And yet I'm reminded of the glory of the gospel that that's not going to stop the Lord from reaching out to those who will receive it. We see that the weak and the base things, the things that the world would shame and would call foolish and, and despise, God upholds. He upholds those whom he has chosen. And we go on to see in verse 29, why has God done this? He's done this in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. There will be no more pride and self-exaltation when he returns. I'm reminded in the book of Acts when Herod is standing before the people and he gives a great speech and the people cry out, ah, his voice is like the voice of God. And Herod did not glorify the Lord and so instantly he was struck for taking that pride for himself. I'm reminded of those types of stories in the scripture when I see the things on the news. Regardless of where you find yourself in, in the things unfolding, I'm reminded on both sides of the aisle there's a lot of pride. And it's going to be humble at the foot of the cross when Jesus returns and when he sits upon that throne. And I'll speak very frankly with you. I, I'm thankful for the president we've had these last four years. And the reason why it has nothing to do with his personality. He's not perfect. And yeah, he says a lot of things he should never have said on Twitter. But I'm thankful that he stood for the life of unborn babies in the womb. I'm thankful he stood for religious freedom. But I know he's been arrogant too. And I know for that, he's going to stand judgment before Almighty God. And I pray for him, for his salvation. And I pray for the president-elect that is coming in, regardless of how we feel about the president, we're called not to speak evil of him, but to pray for him. I was reminded several years ago when Barack Obama was president, I didn't enjoy his presidency because of the things he stood for. But I was convicted that I should care more about his soul and I should be praying for him more than resisting him. And I'm not saying we should not resist ungodly policies. We should through the means of the law. But do we hate a certain ideology so much that we care nothing for people's souls? Or will we pray for their salvation? Will we pray for the president and the vice president coming in? Regardless of how everything's happened, will we pray for their salvation? Will we pray for our senator's salvation? If you will turn over with me to 1 Timothy, I believe it's chapter 4. I did not plan this uh, verse this morning. But I want to share this passage with you. It's a good reminder. I don't think it's chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is talking to his young protege Timothy who probably was somewhere between the age of 12 and 15 when he started following Paul and probably was a teenager when he gets sent off to be Paul's representative to the churches. And he, he writes to Timothy here and look at what he says to him. I think it's so appropriate for us these days. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, 
Verse 2, for kings and all those who are in authority, why that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. I'm reminded of uh, a phrase, I don't know who coined it, but the phrase says, that this earth is the only hell a believer is ever going to know. That it's the only heaven an unbeliever is ever going to know. And when I think of that, isn't that so discouraging? This world is the only heaven an unbeliever is ever going to know. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of enjoyable things, but nothing will be compared to what's coming in Jesus. And for us as believers, it's a good reminder, this is the only hell we're ever going to endure. It's going to get much better. God's going to take care of all of us. If you will turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we saw there, no flesh is going to glory in God's presence. It is a glory that is not about me, and it's a glory that is not our own. In verse 30, Paul goes on to point to the Corinthians that Jesus Christ is our wisdom. When we don't know what to say, I'm reminded like the prophet Jeremiah when he stands before God, when the Lord calls him as a young man and says, God, I'm just a youth. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to speak. The Lord tells him, I'll be with you now. You go tell them what I tell you to say. I'm reminded that Jesus is our wisdom. When we don't know what to say, when we don't know where to turn, ask him for discernment. Trust him. Jesus told us in the gospel, in the context, mind you, this statement is in the context of persecution. When you stand before kings and governors, do not worry about what to say. Because in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you what you need. We don't have to fear, for the Lord will give us that. Jesus is not only the wisdom that we need, giving us the direction and the guidance that we need, but he is also our righteousness. Righteousness has to do with two things, having right standing with God, being right in relationship with him, and also doing the right thing. Jesus is both of those for us. He is the mediator, which is standing between God the Father and us. We're right with God because of him. And also it's Jesus who by his spirit not only gives us the power to do what is right, but he teaches us what is right. We live in a day and an age where there is fighting about what is right and what is truth. Well, I can tell you what it is because my Savior has defined what it is. He teaches us what is right and he gives us the empowerment of his spirit to do what is right. He also sanctifies us. He sanctifies us. Several years ago, I wrote a little booklet on this because it's the, the second phase of salvation. And I titled the little booklet, The Forgotten Phase of Salvation. Because when we're saved, the Bible teaches there's, there's kind of three progressions, if you will, to how our salvation plays out. There's justification. The moment we trust in Jesus, it's just as if we never sinned. We're completely clean. The slate has been wiped away. And then we're sanctified. Sanctification, where the Lord is working out a process of getting more and more of the life of Jesus in us. We have all of Jesus there is when we trust him. But we all know that we have a long way to go to be just like Jesus, don't we? And 
And that's what the Holy Spirit's doing in salvation. Not only are you saved, but you are being saved from the sin nature that is still warring within your spirit. And then lastly, there is glorification, which is the time in which we will be as Jesus is in his presence, free from the presence of sin, inoculated completely from it. We've been forgiven from the penalty of sin. We are being freed from the power of sin, and one day we will be freed from the very presence of sin. That is the truth of the gospel we hold to. And as Paul finishes out this chapter, he says, Let him who glories, let the person who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? He is to be our boast, and he is worthy of it. It's a glory not about me, a glory not our own. And then thirdly, in chapter 2, we see point number 3, the essential and central, the essential and central, Christ Jesus crucified. If you look at the first five verses here in chapter 2, Paul begins to speak. To kind of set the stage for you there, as Paul speaks, he's, he's setting the stage for later on when he's going to have to deal with uh, people that undermined his authority as an apostle. Now, Paul was very humble about this, but nonetheless, they were accusing him of being a false prophet. There were many churches that actually did that in New Testament times. They didn't like Paul, and they preferred Apollos, who was the great eloquent speaker, or they preferred Peter, if they were Jewish many times, who was you know, the great Jewish leader on the day of Pentecost, who stood up and was the leader in Jerusalem. But Paul reveals something here. He reveals that he's not the best preacher. He was a very blessed writer inspired by the Holy Spirit. Brilliant theologian. But notice what he reveals about himself. He's very transparent here with them. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know not anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Now, is that how you picture Paul? Do you picture him weak? Do you picture him fearful, trembling? He came that way. He felt that way. The Bible doesn't tell us what he looked like. The historical records around that time say that he was under five foot tall, a short guy, hunchback, unibrow, he wasn't a very intimidating figure, most likely. He came to them in weakness, in fear, in trembling, verse 4. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When Paul came to them, it wasn't about his message. And honestly, he wasn't the best preacher in the early church. Apollos most likely was, based on scripture. Very eloquent. Paul wasn't. And when Paul came, the Apostle Paul, he was weak. He was fearful. He was trembling. But he came with one message, and that was Jesus Christ and him crucified. We live in a day and an age when I really think all that's going on in our nation is going to be a sifting time for so many of our churches because there's been such a focus on a church growth movement that's unbiblical. 
there's been such a focus on programs or wow factors and entertainment rather than the power of the gospel. And because of that, in all honesty, so many churches have no faith in the power of God, but rather, sadly, in the wisdom of man. And it's being stripped away. It's being stripped away because of COVID. It'll probably be stripped away because of other things soon. But Paul grounded this church when he planted it upon the power of God. It had nothing to do with Paul. had nothing to do with his speeches. had nothing to do with the way he preached. He brought them one message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the only power that can set us free from sin and Satan. And Paul prayed and depended on the demonstration of the Spirit of God in his power. What we need in our churches is an outpouring of the power of God. And we need a revival of the good old gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Far too often, churches exchange that one message for other things. To become more relevant, to get a bigger crowd, or to become more culturally appealing seen it far too often. I've seen a toning down, even in seminary, of the gospel, and it's a sad thing to see. And I'm reminded that in the end, the gospel is going to win out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you turn over there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is speaking in this entire chapter about the resurrection hope we have in Jesus. And over in Romans, he tells us that the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you and me. That's incredibly encouraging. The same Holy Spirit lives in us. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to share with you just the first part of this chapter. Because Paul begins by talking about how he brought the gospel to them. And he's going to kind of uh, give some smack talk to the Corinthians, kind of like he does over in Galatians of, have you forgotten the gospel that I brought to you? He's kind of sarcastic for a purpose. And if you start with me here in verse 1, we're going to go down to verse 3. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached for you, unless you have believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now Paul goes on. He talks about the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. But where does it all start? First of all, with Christ dying for our sins. When Jesus went to Corinth, if you turn back to where we left off in uh, chapter 2, Paul brought to them one message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the hinge point of everything we believe. And it is the same thing that was mocked in Paul's day. It was considered an old story. It was considered old-fashioned. It was considered by many a fairy tale. But Paul reminds them to use the term 
we have learned so much over the last year, this is what is essential. This is what is central. It is of essential importance, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul came in weakness. He came in fear. He came in trembling. Perhaps you find yourself that same way during the week. Maybe in your workplace. Maybe amongst your family. You find yourself weak. You find yourself fearful, trembling. What do I say? What do I do? It is still the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when the Holy Spirit works in someone's heart, causing them to believe and to graciously receive the gospel, it is a miracle that takes place. And that is why our faith does not rest in the wisdom of man, but it rests in the power of God. And what a thing for us to pray for. What a thing for us to cry out to God for. So as we wrap up today and and round down here, I remind you that Paul was not the best orator. He was not the best preacher. Some of the churches that Paul pastored, he planted many, but the churches he pastored were far from problem-free, which I think is interesting. It wasn't the preacher's fault that Corinth was as it was, or that Ephesus had lost its first love. They had Paul, they had Timothy, and they had John, the apostle, above all of their pastor before that letter was written. But the question I think for us today is just as Paul ended, where is our faith? Where is it centered? You as a church are praying for God's will, and I pray he clearly reveals that to you. I truly believe he has a great plan in store for you very soon. But you have to ask yourself this question. Is your faith centered in the life of this church? Is your faith centered in the man standing behind this pulpit? Because if it is, it's misplaced. Is your faith resting in a revival in your city? Or is your faith resting... Or maybe I should not say your faith is your confidence and your peace resting in the restoration of glory to this nation. If it is, it's misplaced. Or do you have undiluted joy in the reaffirmed greetings that Paul speaks of, the beautiful truths we're reminded of of the gospel there, in a glory that is not manufactured in a, in a message and a person that is undying, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would join me for a few minutes of prayer today and and a few minutes of silence before we close out in our final worship song. I'd like to lead you in prayer and then I'd like to ask for just a few moments of quiet for us to just talk to the Lord. Father, I thank you today for your word. Father, I thank you that the power is in Jesus. The power is in your spirit. And Father, I pray for Bloomsdale. I pray for your plans in the future. Father, for them, and I pray for your wisdom and discernment. But Father, I also pray, most importantly, that you would give your boldness. Father, that you'd help every one of us to remember it's about Jesus and him crucified. Like Paul, we may find ourselves at times fearful, weak, or trembling, but you didn't disown Paul because he felt that way. But you called Paul in Acts just like you call us today. To not place our confidence and our trust in our feelings, but in our faith in you. 
Lord Jesus, I pray for our nation. Father, I pray for a time when it seems like things are just unraveling at the seams. Father, it seems like it won't be long before it's not just not popular to proclaim your truth, but not allowed. Father, I pray for our nation. For I have been heartbroken many times and angry at what I see happening. But Father, I pray for the churches all across this land. Father, for so long, just like Israel, so many have taken their eyes off of you. Father, if we look deep within our hearts, we may claim, we may think that, that we have been firm in the truth and standing upon the gospel. We're not like, quote-unquote, those other churches. But Father, if we're honest and we look deeply within our own hearts, I don't believe any of us can stand guiltless, myself included. There are ways in which we have bought into those lies as well. We've trusted in our selfishness. Father, we've not considered essential what you have. But I pray, Father, in the midst of these days, for true revival. Lord, revival is bringing back life into something that was once alive and vibrant. Would you do so in churches all across your land, even today? Father, would you speak to hearts? Father, would your word once again resound? Lord, would disciples be made? Father, would we love the good old gospel? It's a bloody gospel, yes it is, but it's a beautiful gospel, for it's the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And your grace is not cheap, it is costly. As we take just a few moments, Father, to be still in our own hearts. And to listen to you this morning. I pray that your spirit would clearly speak. Let me just push aside any distractions.